Hey, thanks so much for joining uh, me. I'm really stoked. I've got some good friends of mine with me, Sean and Frank. In fact, their proper titles are Dr. Sean and Reverend Frank. Um, Frank Ritchie's a minister uh, for the Wesleyan Methodist Church. He's the uh, minister for Commoners Church in Hamilton. Uh, he's also uh, a media personality. He probably doesn't like that term, uh, but he's one of the, the voices uh, that often the media turn to uh, for opinions, which is really good in my opinion. And uh, also he's a chaplain to the media, which is just just a beautiful thing. Dr. Sean Dutoy is the uh, New Testament lecturer for Alpha Crucius Bible College. He's also the theologian in residence for uh, Tear Fund. And uh, these guys are, are great uh, friends of mine and also great voices. Uh, one of the things that I'm aware of at this time, and, and we'll open with this, guys, is that it's uh, really important uh, who shapes our, our worldview. And uh, so, these days with the internet and, what, internet and whatnot, there's so many voices that we could engage with. And it's hard to know like who's reputable and who's worth listening to. And uh, for me, you guys are, are guys I often turn to uh, when I've got a theological question. I've, I've engaged both of you in the last six months probably with, hey, you know, help me understand this or what would you take beyond this? Um, but how do you guys shape who should be your voices and how do we frame that? Frank, I'll start with you. Like, How do we... Uh, make sure that who we're listening to is helpful and, and how do we make that decision? Yeah, that's a really good question. Before before we dive into that, can I just point out, lovely introduction, and you'll notice some differences between Sean's setting and my setting. Sean is the theologian, <laughs> so he's got the books in the background to, uh, so, that, so that you know that he's the brains of the church operation, whereas I'm the PR guy. So all I thought about when setting up this was how do we make everything look beautiful? I'm the beautiful face of the church. Sean is the brains of the church. Sam is the pastor of the I'm church. I'm the pastor that loves technology as well, though, just quietly, and so I've bought a few gadgets. Sean's got some imitation iPhone. I don't even know if they look legitimate, but he's got some terrible headphones going on over there. Oh, sorry, I have. No, yeah. no, they look. They sound great, man. <laughs> but coming coming back to the question, because it, it's a really good question. Uh, one of the best things I did, and this is just going to sound, I don't, I don't know how it sounded, but one of the best things I ever did was actually formal theological study. That introduced me to yeah. a whole lot of to a whole lot of really good voices. Where in an environment, in the classroom environment, and the theological environment you're able to test and to 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 wrestle with those voices together with other people who are really thinking about this stuff and diving into it as well so that was probably one of my best starting points was theological study uh, and then as I've discovered voices through that that I've that I've trusted and appreciated and enjoyed the depth of what they have to offer their voices have led to other voices like what voices are they drawing from so if I could offer any advice for for people in churches would be the church that you've chosen to be a part of clearly you're there because you value the voices coming from for want of a better term the front uh, you value the pastoral voices so in an age where you can just dive online and get anything I would say one of the best places to go to find voices that you trust is to ask your pastors ask your leaders what, are, what who are they listening to who's feeding into them that is then enabling them to speak into your life Take some humility to um, sort of come under <laughs> both any leadership in a church, but also um, the theological voices that can be really helpful for us. It can be it can be tempting, I think, in this day of YouTube and and uh, an instant access to anything to wind up in little rabbit holes that uh, wind up shaping us. So it's um yeah, Sean, what, what would your voice uh, say to that? You know, how would you speak into that? 
Yeah, look, I'm an academic, so I don't have the luxury of just picking and choosing. I have to engage with everybody, <laughs> which is kind of nice because I get to see the array of ideas that are out there. Uh, I think when I'm looking for people as to who I recommend, I'm always looking for more than just what they're saying. I'm looking for what they're doing and how are they part of the church. It's you know, it's very easy to be an armchair critic when you're outside of it, you're not involved in anything, you're not part of anything. And so I look for theologians who are actually part of the church, who are actually trying to build the church. And it's going to sound strange, but I look for their love for God. Mm. And for me, it, it you know, a lot of academic writing can be quite dry. It's quite technical. Uh, but sometimes, especially in the older stuff, you'll, you'll see glimmers of, you know, actually, this means something to that person. This is something deeply personal. Uh, and so I, I kind of look for a holistic picture, you know. Take a guy like Miroslav Wolf, you know. He's a theologian at Yale. Uh, and yet he's writing about topics that have personally impacted him, topics about forgiveness, topics about how God is at work in this world, topics about human flourishing. And for me, I'm like, wow, you know, here's somebody who's experienced life, you know, He's got a harrowing story about being interrogated and, you know, facing obstacles and, you know, facing an enemy and trying to put this into practice. You know, here's Jesus' command, love your enemy. And he's being interrogated by someone. And his theology is born out of a real life experience and out of a real love, I sense, for the church. You know, guys like Tom Wright, you know, they've been ministers, they've been pastors, they've been there. And so when I'm looking at theological writing, I'm not just looking and saying, are you saying something novel? Because often I think novelty is overrated. I'm more interested in fidelity, not novelty. Uh, and I'm looking for, hey, is there a deep sense of love for God and love for his people? And I think once you kind of have that as a framework, it's kind of easy to whittle out voices that are just being hypercritical mm. or just saying weird stuff for the sake of saying weird mm. stuff. Just, just touching on that, uh, Sam, there's a, there's, a great, there's, a, there's a phrase that I sometimes use that I think picks up on, on something Sean has pointed out there. That's for, I, to a degree, I look for people who have a bit of a limp. You know, they've, they've been through stuff. They've got some of the scars. So Wolf, for instance, has, has been through stuff. He's got a bit of a limp, but it hasn't made him bitter or fearful of the world around him. It's caused him to engage in a manner that's very Christ-like. It's almost uh, our savior is someone who has a limp. He has the scars. But rather than that causing him to become defensive and insular, uh, the savior that we follow has been propelled into the world. So I look for people that have a bit of a limp. They've been there, done that. But where the limp has caused them to engage in love and to reach out to the world around them in a way that doesn't seem fearful and defensive. Um, we'll we'll dive back into like the theological because again I just love you can almost feel the juices starting to get going with you guys where it's like here we go this is good <laughs> quoting theologians whose names I can't pronounce let alone suspect read but um it's but I, <clears throat> I asked I reached out on on social media and just said you know is there any questions that people want to um, feed into and so we'll we'll cycle back and we'll come back to some of um, both how we how we engage theologically uh, well, certainly when we're going through an upheaval like we're going through, um, but just coming more to a pragmatic thing at the moment, um, church has had you know the church has had a, a change, you know, insane. It's like in the, within a week we had to totally reorientate how 
we well, we couldn't gather how we did whatever we do, particularly on Sundays, but also within um, this, the the community throughout the week and all that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, both Bevan and Jesney uh, were asking similar questions around, um, you know, what's been your take on on what uh, this has meant for the church? Uh, you know, what's your critical thinking kind of you know, around what's the um, opportunities and things that perhaps this has been positive in terms of forcing the church to engage a little bit? What are some of the things we have to be a bit careful about? Um, and uh, I've been talking with the pastor last week. He, he was uh, saying that, you know, on one level, it's a positive thing because the church um, gathered in a way that was on its terms. And so if you wanted to, you know, find out what a Christian service was like, you'd have to go to their location at their time. This has now meant that because everyone's online, that people can uh, engage with church and maybe explore about what it's about on their terms, which is a really nice thing. But at the same time, there's some dangers around um, just, you know, moving to some virtual, uh, you know, uh, kind of um, default as a church, which is not where we want to go. So, um, I mean, Frank, you're, you're in the thick of it. Do you want to kick us off and then we'll go over to Sean? But just what's you've been thinking as you've kind of led your church through this and, and what, are, what are you thinking about in terms of how this has impacted the church? Will it change the church long term or is this just a blip in the radar and we'll go back to normal soon? Mm, that's really good stuff to be grappling with. And and uh, churches around New Zealand have been scrambling. I mean, I remember going into this and within a period of 48 hours, my plans of what we we're going to be doing, uh, as, as you guys will know, changed like multiple times. And so I was constantly communicating with my church until we got to that space where I was like, okay, we can't actually do anything physically together. We have to think about how we're going to do this online and make sure that our people feel connected in some way, whether they're technology savvy uh, or not. And uh, there's, there's two things I think that are worth holding intention here, lament and uh, gratitude and celebration. Uh, I totally believe and am sold out on the idea that the church is a physically gathered community. It's a, it's a community that hangs out together. We are physically embodied people. We were created with bodies and those bodies uh, are made to be together. They're made to, to hang out. I also hold a very sacramental view of the church and being a good Protestant, I hold to two sacraments, Holy Communion and Baptism. Both of those are very physical. We engage in the body and the blood of Jesus. It's very visceral when we're doing communion. Baptism is a community gathered and someone being submerged in water. Like These are very physical things. So I lament and I've constantly told our people as we've gathered online that we lament the fact that we cannot physically gather together, that what we're doing, uh, whilst it's good, is just a shadow of what we're really all about. And though there's, uh, I know there's that grappling with the idea that you've got to do church on the church's terms. Yes, when it comes to our worship, we do it on the church's terms. There's a difference between how we missionally engage in the world around us and then how we gather together and engage in the very Christian act of worship together. That is dictated uh, by church in relationship with, with Jesus. So there is an expectation where if you've committed yourself to Jesus and you want to do this life together, yes, you participate in this community life that, that we do together. Uh, but I'm also grateful for the opportunity that we have to give people, I guess, a soft introduction to what it is that we do and that we have these tools that have never been available in history so that on Sundays we can still gather, we can still do some midweek things, we can still catch up with one another. So I think that that lament and that celebration, that gratitude go together. But I am thoroughly looking forward to 
that first time where my people are able to gather together again and we can do a shared meal together again as well. When we can break bread together, where we can hug and shake hands because that's what we're created for. Yeah. Awesome. What about you, Sean, particularly in light of church history as well, like, you know, how, how does this event help shape our ecclesiology? Ooh. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> People want to know um, that means just it's a fancy word for how we do church. <laughs> it's good for the ego when you've got big yeah. words. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've kind of been delving into church history and just seeing early Christian responses to uh, epidemics and pandemics and that sort of thing. And, and uh, uh, the things oh, I really noted saying, for example, in Cyprian, an early third century theologian, he talks about the solidarity in suffering. And it's kind of like this is, we've all been in this together. You know, we're all stuck at home together. We're all kind of worried about what's going to happen. And we're all thinking and planning. And there's been this kind of shared experience. And I think shared experiences have a way of bringing people together, or they can. Uh, and, and I think so for the church, I'm hoping that there's a kind of a, a, a deeper intimacy. There's a deeper relationality there. You know, I'm with Frank. Church is always going to be an embodied experience for me. I don't think you can be faithful to the Christian scriptures and the Christian tradition and, and not have physical gatherings forever. You know, I think that this is a great opportunity that we can meet together. Digitally, my church has gone full Zoom. You know, we have breakout rooms and Zoom. We have, you know, full-on liturgy and Zoom, and 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 everything. All of that's cool. While we can't meet together, but like Frank, I can't wait to get back to meeting my friends, to being there, to be able to hug people because it is an embodied faith to be able to break bread with my friends and my brothers and sisters Christ, uh, and yet this kind of solidarity in experience has been wonderful, you know, I mean, wonderful in the sense that it's bringing us together, not wonderful in the sense of, you know, it's bad and people are suffering. Uh, and so I, I kind of think the way we do church, well, look, we've always got the option to reinvent church. That's always on the table. COVID-19 hasn't all of a sudden given us this opportunity. It's always been on the table. And so for me, it's how theology can shape and embody in and kind of form our gatherings is more my kind of question. You know, I you know, theology breeds methodology. And so for me, if we have a, a theology that says we're in this together, we're connected, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, are you know, we share this faith. We are committed to one another. Then I think, you know, this, this season, this time of lockdown has been great in kind of breaking down some of the walls. There's nothing like a bit of a pressure cooker situation to reveal some of your character, you know? And I think all of that's been really interesting. I mean, Cyprian again is writing in the third century and he talks about how this is a formative experience for them. You know, it reveals to them their true character, their true allegiances, their true commitments. And I think that that's been a bit of a wake up call to some people. You know, it's very easy to outsource your spirituality. You know, if you in a fixed rhythm, you know, you go to church, they tell you what to do. You, you kind of just, fit into that stream and you just go along with it 
now I think that we've actually had to take ownership of our spirituality. You know, uh, a friend of mine in a moment of honesty said, you know, I used to think work was the, you know, time constraints was the reason I didn't spend uh, much time in prayer. I quickly discovered that wasn't the case. You know, I had all this extra time and yet I haven't made prayer a priority. And I was like, well, okay, so what are you going to do with that revelation? Mm. Uh, and you know, they just shared with me and I'm like, okay, cool. Well, let's, start baby steps. Cause I don't want people thinking, well, I've got all this time now I'm going to climb Everest. No, just relax and take it small steps in the right direction. And I think you're getting there. Mm. So I think two things for me have come through the solidarity in increasing our relationality and, you know, building solid relationships and just being there for people and checking in with people and mm. actually being brothers and sisters to one another. Mm. And then this notion of, oh, okay, cool. How is this experience forming me as a person and helping me to become the person that I believe Jesus wants me to become? Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. I, um, I heard uh, the other day someone say, I pray that this, this time of being online gives us a renewed appreciation for the gathered church. And I thought, yeah. what a wonderful prayer. Frank, let's dive into that formation question. Is that, uh, unless you want to comment to that? Yeah, I just, I just wanted to offer a thought there. My, part of my hope too, uh, rolling off what Sean has said, is that, is that churches have taken up the challenge. And I think, I think many have of, of crit- critically analyzing a lot of what we sink our effort into. Because here we've had to go, what's really important to us? What are we really missing? And the physicality of gathering together is probably what most of us are really, really missing. And then what are we sinking effort into that really we could probably uh, just do a little less of when we're gathering back together again? I think we're discovering that our hanging out together is really important. How we're serving each other, how we're connecting together, how we're being together, we're discovering, uh, have discovered is really important here. Uh, how we're doing that job of loving one another as brother and sister, and then how we're drawing other people into that journey as well. Because one of the one of the messages I've been giving our people is tell us what you need so that we can we can work together to try to meet those needs. But then also, what's going for the, on for the people closest to you and how can we help meet their needs, understanding that many of them probably aren't attached to a community like the church. So hopefully, all the things we spend money on, all the things we sink time and effort and stress into, hopefully when we come back, we've kept some of the lessons of what we found to be really important in the middle of this. Mm. And look, I, th- I think that there, there are missional opportunities here. There are missional opportunities to reach out to people, to care for people. There are missional opportunities of, you know, put your service online and you've got a whole bunch of strangers who all of a sudden are curious and they'll click in and check in. And I think all of those are really cool and great. Um, And there are bonuses, but I don't want us to think that, you know, I think the greatest lesson for me now, and especially when we go down to level two or level three or level two or level one, sorry, I think, you know, doing stuff in our homes is going to be great. You know, people taking ownership of that. That's the church being the church. And I love Sundays. Don't get me wrong. I think corporate gatherings are really important and necessary. But if you're just doing church on a Sunday morning from X time to Y time, you're missing out on something really beautiful. Yeah, I think there's a... um craving across the board especially at the moment for for you know that relate genuine relational connection and um it's been interesting like even just as you're saying sean about going back even to that third century where they're like in the midst of this pressure of whatever it may be epidemic pandemic 
you know, upheaval of some way, some description, uh, there is an opportunity for formation in the midst of it. And, uh, but, you know, when we went through the earthquakes in Christchurch, it's been very interesting in my reflections, looking just back at my own journey in terms of navigating that and the pressure that came on, which is very different, but it's still, it's pressure. And then, you know, I've talked to our guys about liquefaction, you know, it's like there's a liquefaction of life, but a pressure goes on and all this sort of rubbish bubbles up that you thought, certainly when you're looking at the filter of the fruit of the spirit, I'm like, oh Lord, I thought we're doing okay, but a pressure comes on and oh, cross, cross, cross as I look through the list. Um, and so how can, how can we, again, one of the questions one of my friends, Michael Burson from Christchurch asked was how, uh, you know, what's your top lesson for how we can um, grow, how we can be formed uh, spiritually in this season? Uh, like, what would your advice be for people? And I know we're like, we're well into it now, but it's still like, it's not going to end in a hurry. And um, I, I think even if you haven't, for me, I, I've struggled. This last month has not been my finest month by a long stretch. And, uh, but it's like, oh man, it's just not a... I always do, I want to get back on the wagon. So what's, what are the things that someone like me who struggled probably over the last month spiritually, as well as, um, you know, uh, in other ways, but what would your advice be in terms of how we can be formed, how we can leverage the season to be formed a little bit more? Frank, mm. we'll, again, we'll start with you. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's probably an ongoing question where, where many of us are learning, we're experimenting, we're trying things, we're advising things, and some, some things will land and, and some things won't. Uh, for commoners, our, our liturgy and what we do in liturgy is actually, it's probably one of the most important things we do. What we do on a Sunday is there to provide rhythms that you can then engage in during, during the week. So the liturgy is really simple. We have moments of silence so that hopefully you discover and learn how good just the practice of silence as a practice of prayer can be in your, in your daily prayer life. Uh, when it comes to the Bible passage, I don't, I don't preach a sermon. We do a discussion together so that you, you learn how to grapple with uh, others in discussing the Bible. And hopefully, rather than saying, hey, here's what you have to believe in the Bible, what we're doing, what we're trying to do is ignite interest in just engaging uh, in it. So there's a lot of those things that we do on a, on a Sunday and reflective practices when we're in our time of Holy Communion, lighting candles, writing prayers, drawing prayers. Um, these are all tools that you can use during the week. And we aim to provide them as something that things that are really simple. So I would say if you're sitting there and I, I went through a, a faith experience in 2012 that pretty much ripped apart how I understood my faith and discovering the practice of silence was really important. Up until then, um, my faith had been based largely on what I could achieve in the world and my ability to measure what I was achieving in the world and where I was making a difference. And in 2012 in the Holy Land on a trip for our tear fund, I discovered how useless I really am. And I remember sitting in the church of the Holy uh, Nativity, and this sounds really, uh, really romantic, and it really wasn't. I was sitting in the church of the Nativity where tradition holds Jesus was born, and the monks were doing their liturgy of the hours. They were waving the incense around. There's all the icons. You've got the pilgrims coming in and going under the altar to where the cave is that, where Jesus was supposed to have been born. They're kissing the spot, which hopefully gets disinfected regularly now because of coronavirus. Uh, and I was sitting there thinking, I discovered the, the conflict, uh, really discovered the conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I remember sitting there in the church thinking, I should pray something. You know, God should, God should act here. But I had nothing. I had absolutely no words to pray. I just felt useless. I felt dumb. I felt like a waste of uh, space. So I just, I just sat there with absolutely nothing. 
Uh, and it was one of those wonderful church pictures because there is this window up uh, in the distance that shines a light down on the altar. And when the incense is, is happening, uh, the smoke wafts through that light. It's wonderful, wonderful picture. And I was sitting there looking at that light thinking, I've got nothing. And I just sat there in silence. And it was probably the most freeing moment uh, that I can remember in my journey of spirituality, just sitting there going, I got nothing. And no expectation of myself. I have no expectation that God could or should or would do anything here. It's just him and me and we're, we're actually okay. So I regularly practice silence now just to remind myself that no matter what I'm achieving in the world, no matter how good I'm doing spiritually, no matter how great my practices are, uh, that silence reminds me that God and I are good uh, anyway. And then hopefully the rest of my life is an outflow of that. But it's simple, it's simple little things. I think we've overinflated what we have to do. You know, you have to pray every day. You have to read your Bible every day. You have to make sure that you're at every church service. And if you do these things, then you're a spiritual giant and God will love you just this little bit more than he did the week before if you managed it. And if you didn't, well, you're slightly off. Now, actually, you and God are okay. If you've said yes to Jesus and that's your disposition, you and God are okay. Uh, all these things that we do are just an outflow of that and a way to remind ourselves that we sit close to God. And I would encourage people, if you've been trying stuff and it hasn't worked, just try sitting in silence for a, for a little bit. Then there are simple little apps you can get as well so that you're, you're both active and passive in your participation in spiritual disciplines. Uh, Pray As You Go is a really good one, just a short 10 to 15 minutes. It's easy to pull out your phone, hit play for the day. You get a little bit of scripture, some contemplation and prayer, really easy stuff to engage in. I say, take the pressure off a little bit mm. and see how magical that is. Yeah, it's good. There's another one, Lectio 365 is one that uh, some yeah. of our guys have been using recently as well, similar vein to Pray As You Go. Sean, what you, what's your comments on this formation, you know, how we can be formed spiritually well in the midst of something like this? Yeah, kind of a similar to what... Sorry. <laughs> Here we go. Um, <laughs> I think similar to what uh, Frank was saying, I, I think my, my discipline has just been trying to slow down uh, you know, uh, I think too often we buy into uh, the kind of a business world model where, you know, productivity, success, get things done, bottom line, you know, produce, write another article, read another book, read this, listen to this. And, and it just becomes quite tiring. And, and it just, and so now I think uh, one, of, one of the articles I, I read was about productivity porn during this time and about how everyone is raving about how productive they're being. And I just kind of feel like I've, I've needed to fight that because uh, it's quite easy to lock myself up in my office and just forget about the world and just produce stuff. But what am I producing? You know, is it soaked in prayer? Is it soaked out of a deep love for people? Um, and so for me, it's kind of been the opposite. I've been trying to, just slow down and I find it quite a freeing uh, liberating experience of going you know what the world's not going to end if I don't read another book today the world's not going to end if I don't read another article if I don't send another email if I don't check up on you know this other deadline or project that I'm busy working on and so it, I think in the midst of it uh, you know like Frank said just give yourself a break mm. you know, just relax and breathe you know, just actually sit and know that there's a God 
who gives a damn about you. He, he clearly, he, he gives it way more of a damn than anybody else. Um, and kind of the flip side of that is one of my favorite passages is in 1 Peter 5. You know, in the old English translations, it says, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. And the word cast, ekbalo, is the Greek. It literally means pick it up and throw it. And I love that notion of being able to throw something at God. Mm. And I don't mean that in an irreverent sense. I mean that in the psalmist sense of when you're weighted down with everything, with this anxiety and this panic and this concern and this fear and this whatever's gripped you, when you can just pick it up and say, God, I can't do this without you. I need you. You know, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 13. And it's kind of schizophrenic because it's, you experience whiplash reading it as, as the kind of Psalmist goes through these stages of where the hell are you God? You know, the Hebrew is, is aggressive. It's attacking. It's, it's kind of in your face and it's there. And you're like, Whoa, you can't it's the, the perfect place for your, perfect place for your video to freeze. Um, sorry, Sean, <laughs> I'm so grateful. I'm not going to edit that out from all the tea in China. That was magic. Sorry. So, what's the second like, part? Second plan that? <laughs> what was the second part of that psalm? So, what's the the offset to that? Sorry. So. The, the psalmist is going through these stages and, mm. and he, the first one is this kind of aggressive attacking in the first two verses. And the second two verses are, are this, hello, I'm talking to you. Where are you? You know, answer me. I'm, I'm still here. I'm still waiting for you to reply. And then the final two verses are, okay, I've learned to trust you. Now, there's no indication that his issue has been resolved. There's no indication that God has kind of magically or mysteriously appeared to him in a burning bush or, you know, something miraculous has happened. Nothing. There's just this journey of, I threw this at God. I'm God. And, <laughs> Here's the uh, I know. He's just got an anointed video camera. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love your video camera so much. It's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, I just, I mean, it's actually super encouraging hearing that personally, guys. I mean, last week I preached a, a talk and, and going into that Sunday, I was oh man, what do I say? <clears throat> and it was a very, very identical, actually, thoughts. Um, the, the phrase that came to me was that, you know, those WWJD bracelets that were all, mm. the, all the rage back in the day. I just felt this thing of like WWJSTY, like what would Jesus say to you? Mm. And um, and I just felt like him asking me that question. Like, what, what do you think I would say to you right now, Sam, as you feel a bit sort of flat and a bit, you know? And, um, you know, all those Matthew 11 stuff have just come to me and rest and come to me and, uh, and learn to walk with me. And uh, it was just so liberating. It was like taking the pressure off and Isaiah 41 around, you know, wait on the Lord, renew your strength. Yeah, it may be soaring like wings of eagles. It may be running and not growing weary. That's pretty, maybe walking and not fainting. And I'm like, tick. Or crawling and not collapsing as the continuum surely must continue. Uh, and all of that is legitimate kind of postures as in the midst of still looking to God. Yeah. Uh, just just quickly, Sam, as a, as a spiritual exercise, that question of what would Jesus say to you is a really good question to ask yourself at two levels. Uh, one, what would Jesus say to you 
and then give your really honest answer about what you think he would say to you. Like really. And then yeah, that, like, that oh, gut response, because that's the, that's, that's the, the danger is the temptation to say what we, what we know Jesus would say yeah. to us or the Bible, the Sunday school answer, but the gut, like gut, what do you really, really honestly think? That's what yeah. I'm, I was interested in. That will reveal a lot about what you think about God truly. And then, uh, and then juxtapose that against what you think your minister might say Jesus would say, what you think based on the Bible Jesus would, would say. See, one of the beauty of the psalmist is you, you sometimes, as Sean has pointed out, you get, you get these gut-wrenching uh, questions and doubts and wonderings on the table, and then the psalmist will often finish with what they know to be true uh, of God. And going, going through that experience is really good. Another thought on, on this is, and this is more directed at ministers, I think. For quite a number of years now, I've thought that the church has a, has a prophetic challenge in the culture that we find ourselves in. Uh, people are noisy. They're busy. Levels of anxiety is through the roof. That was before this even uh, kicked in. And I think the church has tried to, uh, tried to make itself relevant by rather than kind of undercutting the noise by trying to be noisier than everybody else, trying mm. to dominate people's lives a little bit more than what others, others have been doing. We've tried to be a little bit louder rather than going, actually a prophetic response here, prophecy, not being future telling, but being a call to uh, repentance and obedience and worship of God. Prophetic response here is to subvert the noise to call people into quieter rhythms, uh, slower rhythms. Yeah, I've been telling that one of the things that I've had the best response to during this time is the prayer of examine that I've been doing uh, via Facebook Live on Wednesday nights. And I'm sure you've been the same with the contemplative thing you've been doing on Wednesday evenings as well. Uh, and just I've be found- better, just for the record, just way better. Um, <laughs> Probably way more involved. Mine, I'm lazy. Mine's really simple. So prayer of examine is a way of, it's just this method of prayer to look back for the fingerprints of God during your day and to find, to find the gifts. Uh, and it's just this five steps that I do exactly the same every Wednesday night because I'm a lazy man. And it, there's lots of silence in it. And people, and I've shaped it so that there's language for people who don't have a faith as well, but people have reflected that just having that space to slow down be quiet and breathe has been really good and healthy for them. So how as a church do we provide that space where people can breathe and actually tune into what the spirit is up to rather than just trying to be louder than everything else and cut through the noise? Yeah. There's a great book that um, anyone that knows me knows I'm just crazy about, but I've got to plug it one more time called the ruthless elimination of, of hurry by a guy called John, John Mark Comer, which is exactly what you just described, Frank, but actually just outlines some beautiful spiritual disciplines that enable us to, and it's interesting because it's it's both the prophetic, the prophetic culture that we want to be in a, in a very rushed and anxious society, but it's also, in my experience, the life in all of its fullness that Jesus promised. And I've been like, where the heck is it? And I found it in these weird places like contemplative, uh, you know, habits and, and silence and solitude, Sabbath rhythms. These sorts of things have enriched my life in the most incredible ways. And it's like, oh, this is what I've been longing for in my life. This is the stuff. Hey, I want to dive into... Um, you know, because what, this quote from A.W. Tozer, like what you think about God, what, you, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, um, is um, something that's popped up. And uh, Steve Graham, one of my friends, spoke at our church on Sunday via video, obviously. Um, and uh, unbeknownst to him, I'd also referenced that quote the week before. And in the midst of, of this sort of time, 
uh, often there's, two, there's this sense where we revert to our default in terms of our image of God. And so, you know, we may be uh, in a church that um, maybe have the minister has a slightly different view than, than our default, but when, when the pressure comes on and this is that we revert to a default image of God that we've carried for a long time often, rightly or wrongly, it could be a helpful thing, it could be not that helpful, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, it's been interesting to, to see this kind of pop up and it happened in the earthquakes in Christchurch. We observed the same thing. Where uh, and um, now the question I've got is that there's a uh, I remember Tony Kempola talking about um, totem poles and how like the native Indians would make these gods that really reflected their own values you know wisdom and strength and and all that sort of stuff and the danger he was challenge- he was saying you know of making a god in our own image uh, where we you know and I I've I've been sitting with that recently because my view of God has changed quite a lot in the last 20 plus years of following him. And uh, he's got so much nicer, <laughs> to be honest. In fact, just the other day, uh, I, I was just in prayer and I felt like God say, and, and whether it's him or not or the curry, I'm not sure, but it was, you know, the sense of, um, I'm actually nicer than you think, Sam. And I'm like, man, I've got a pretty, I feel like I've got a pretty generous view of how nice you are, but okay, sure. you know. <laughs> um, but then I'm like, oh man, am I just, am I just, cherry picking scriptures or am I just, um, you know, trying to navigate through, uh, you know, some theological uh, reading of the Bible here that makes God a bit nicer than he really is, particularly in light of some Old Testament texts where God seems to wipe out people pretty, pretty freely and revelation, which uh, has been more the stuff that's popped up recently around uh, God's judgment and around, um, you know, uh, uh, and around end times kind of theologies and all this sort of stuff. So, my question, which has taken a while to get to, is uh, how, how can we interpret this moment in light of scriptures and revelation and stuff? And how can we make sure that we're not just making some image of God that we just like? Whether that's an angry God who's a bit of a monster, but, you know, he's God, so he can do what he wants. Or whether that's too nice a God who doesn't, you know, have any sense of judgment or lets everyone off the hook or everything in between. Sean, we'll start with you, uh, and because uh, we've started with Frank every time, and that'll get, give him enough time to keep his leg twitching <laughs> while he desperately <laughs> waits for his turn to respond. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know there's some questions in there, so we, Sean. Just trigger words more than anything. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Oh, you should do radio, Sam. That's like a fantastic uh, interview technique, right? <laughs> this is exactly why I don't do radio, Frank, and you know full well <laughs> this is a shambles. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> um. First things first, I think sometimes we uncritically accept this assumption that the Old Testament is this mean, angry God and the New Testament is this loving, kind God. And I want to call bluff and say rubbish. That's just not true. I think if you actually read the Old Testament, you have passages like your loving kindness endures forever. Morning by morning, your mercies are new. I think what people have done is they've taken a handful of passages where God does get angry and we've kind of allowed that to dominate the image of God. And that's just not Israel's testimony of who God is. God is this loving, faithful, kind, relentlessly good God. Uh, I mean, just uh, I think a couple of months ago, I was working through Judges, and I found Judges 10. And there's this situation where kind of Yahweh, the God of Israel, goes in, redeems Israel, and everything's great. And then they go away and they turn away to idolatry. 
Yahweh goes in, goes in, saves the day, redeems them. They, they repent. Then afterwards they go back to idolatry. And every time they go back and then finally in the text, it says, Yahweh says, right, that's it. Enough. I'm not going to forgive you. You've had it. You're going to get this. I'm out. And not four verses later, you encounter this Israel, Yahweh, the God of Israel, couldn't bear, he couldn't bear it to see them suffer. And so he redeemed them and he saved them. And I, I, I mean, I've got to be careful with the language here, but it almost kind of felt like an abusive relationship. But the one being abused was God. And now I don't want to take that metaphor too far because I know that it's full of issues, but, but it just, it felt like the situation where Israel just took advantage of God took it, and God is relentless in his forgiveness and his mercy and, and, and his love. And so I, I just want to call time on the notion that the old Testament pictures this violent mean God, because it's just not true. And I think people like Richard Dawkins say this all the time and it doesn't get called out. And then that's the perception that people are left with. So let's fast forward uh, judgment, you know, in light of the current situation, I've heard some people say, Oh no, COVID is judgment, you know? And I'm like, really? How did you get there? Like, just walk me through the kind of thinking. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, God judges Egypt with various diseases. I'm like, okay, cool. Can we just stop and pause and look at that again and say, he sends people to offer prophetic warning. Hey, guys, please don't do this. If you do this, God's going to have to judge you. He doesn't want to judge you. Let the people go, release them, and God's going to protect his own people. So there's a whole bunch of prophetic prophetic warning and prophetic kind of leading up to this moment. And then it happens. If someone had said to me last year, Hey, on such and such a date, there's going to be a pandemic. Hey world, you need to repent and get right. Or this is the, then I'd be more inclined to take that seriously, that this is a kind of a judgment, but I don't think that there is any reason for me to understand this as some kind of a judgment, especially when you see the people that are really being affected. I mean, I know the markets are crashing, but really that's, I'm talking about real suffering here. I'm talking about people who are dying in the thousands here. And it's the poor, it's the marginalized, it's the elderly. It's people like my mom who've got pleurisy, you know, it, it, you know, it's those are the vulnerable people this thing is attacking. And I just don't see the judgment of God as attacking vulnerable people. If anything, I see God defending the vulnerable. I see God getting really upset and angry when the vulnerable are being taken advantage of, you know, it, people we've kind of in a culture, we've, we, we've got this notion that, Oh, you know, judging is bad. But kind of both of you guys have got kids, you know, imagine someone walks up to your daughter or your son and just smacks them in the face. Are you going to be upset about that? Are you going to react to that? Uh, of course you are. If any loving parent is going to react to that situation now, hopefully we don't react with more violence. We would react appropriately. Although the old man in me is probably going to rise up and I'm going to have to exercise some severe self-control. But, but why do we react? Because we feel so passionately about our commitment to our children and our love for our children. So why would we think God would do anything less? 
God created all of us. God loves all of us. I think when God gets angry, it's because people are taking advantage and people are hurting and causing pain and suffering against those whom he dearly loves. And so I need God to get angry. I need him to be angry at injustice, at rape, at, at, at the violence that is in this world. Because if he doesn't get angry at that stuff, it means he doesn't care. And if I read the Bible, and I hope I'm reading it properly here, it's God actually cares. He cares enough to come himself and bleed for humanity. So I think there's a kind of a, a twin issue here. On the one hand, no, I don't think God's this violent psychopath who's just killing everybody. That's just not the image of scripture. On the other hand, there are moments when God does get justifiably angry at the evil in this world. And I need him to because that shows me that he actually cares. Mm. And so when it comes to the book of Revelation, again, I don't see a violent God. You know, one of the classic scenes, I think it's Revelation 19, you know, Jesus rides in on the horse. You know, he's, he's ready for battle is there. But if you read the text clearly, his robes are already dipped in blood. And the, 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 the word of judgment is, is the word of his mouth, the sword of his mouth. He, he comes to bring a word of judgment because he's already suffered. He's already gone to battle. He's already won the victory. And, and so, again, the book of Revelation, where you kind of expect this violent imagery, and there is violent imagery in the book of Revelation, but if you read it a bit more carefully, it almost seems as if John is subverting the violence of the book with this imagery. He's saying, you know, you're expecting hellfire and but no, actually, it's just going to be a word of judgment and it's done. Mm. Uh, and I mean, the book of Revelation, you know, someone once described it to me as, you know, Dr. Seuss reading Stephen King. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and I love that, you know, um, you know, because it is, it's this fantastical imagery. And I mean that in the technical sense of it's fantasy imagery mm. it, it, that's being used. And, you know, John's pulling out of all these passages and because he's constructing this image to show you that God is going to defeat evil. And the way he's going to defeat evil is his son is going to bleed mm. and his people are going to bleed. And that might look like a failure to you, but it's actually God's greatest mm. defeat. It's mm. actually God's greatest victory mm. is the laying down of his life and the, his people laying down their lives for another. Mm. Uh, and so when, when I think about, you know, COVID and, and, the, and the situation, you know, uh, I think so many times in the Bible, Jesus is challenging people's, you know, we have this superstitious relationship between cause and effect. Oh, something evil's happening. Oh, it must be judgment. And I'm like, you see that in John 9, you know, um, this guy's born blind and his disciples are like, so who sinned? Was it him or his parents? You know, who can we blame? Who's responsible for this? And Jesus just negates the question. No, man, that's a silly question. Don't ask that. Why? Because that's not the issue. The issue is, hey, there's evil and suffering. Let's respond to this and let's respond to this well. Don't assume this is the judgment of God. Don't assume that this is punishment unless you have what, you know, geeks like to call a clear epistemological justification 
You could have finished it with a <laughs> theological nerd alert. Unpacked that word, then we'll go to Franklin, his, his input on this. And, and all that means is what are your reasons for coming to that conclusion? How do you know what you think you know? And so why do we want to think that this is judgment? Are we just projecting our own values around we want vengeance we want blame we want judgment or do we need to take a, a closer look at scripture and say no actually that's not what scripture is revealing about who god is and the way god operates in this world Brilliant. frank and i could probably just say leave it at that but my ego is far too big for that <laughs> <laughs> and we value your insights and you've done some work on it so you know <laughs> That was do the mahi get the treats, bro. You get to say something. Yeah, that, that was truly brilliant. Um, I, I've probably got to this point, and largely it, it rolls off my work with with Tiafun, uh, and Sean is extremely familiar with with that stuff now. Uh, I went, I went through, I went through a phase of dabbling with quite liberal theology. Now, when I say liberal, I don't mean in the political sense. I mean in the theological sense. Uh, so I started moving away from orthodoxy. I started delving into ideas that you know Jesus' body might have still been in the tomb, uh, various various other ideas. But my encounter with my work with Tiafun just just totally changed that. And I probably wouldn't use the word nice when it comes to God. Uh, I would use the word good. Uh, I think, and this is something I've tried to drive home for our people, God is good. God isn't necessarily nice because there is stuff that goes on in the world that doesn't demand a nice answer. It demands a good uh, answer. I remember uh, one time hearing uh, uh, as we were starting to dive into the work of human trafficking and slavery uh, at TFN, particularly uh, sexual exploitation. There was a story that came in from one of our partners in the field where a young lady had managed to escape from her captors, ended up in another country, and then had been able to make her way back to the village that she uh, came from. She had had her tongue cut out. She had had her uterus destroyed by foreign objects being placed inside her so that she couldn't, she couldn't get pregnant. And my idea of God at the time was like very nice because, uh, you know, I've got a comfortable life. And it's interesting to note the people who want the nicest God are the people who are living very comfortable lives. When I heard that story, I'm like, I want a God who can answer that. I want a God who has some justice uh, for that. Uh, and so the, the idea of this, um, this bigger God, this God who does actually judge became really, really important for me. Now, how he does that and how we, we answer the question of how he does that is, is really uh, significant. But it also made a big difference to me. I'm, because I'm a relatively lazy man, I can't stick with one-year Bible reading plans. I just, I just can't do it. As much as that daily practice would be really good, I've started and petered out many times. So I cram it all into Amen. days. <laughs> I do a 90-day reading plan once, uh, once a month. Uh, once a year, not once a month. Once a year, I do a 90-day reading plan. When I first did it, it struck me how infinitely patient God is. Before I did that, I was probably one of those people who got caught in the, uh, the small handful of verses in the Old Testament that Sean was talking about, where we want to make God look angry and, and judgmental and, and violent. But when I couldn't linger on those verses because I had to get through it in 90 days, what I saw was the relentlessly good God who just keeps coming back to these people who keep spitting in his, in his face. But what I also saw was a fiercely protective God, a God who is fiercely protective of the people who seek refuge with him. Uh, 
almost like that imagery that comes up of the of the mother hen who gathers gathers the young under her wings. Now, if someone is coming and threatening her young, you can imagine how she's going to react. That's God. God is fiercely protective of those who seek refuge with him. And he needs to be because there is this world out there that wants to get them. This is the this is the imagery of revelation. You've got these kind of demonic extremely powerful images of the dragon and the beast that rises up out of the sea and the beast that rises up out of the earth. And these are all powerful uh, in the world at the moment. And they want to get God's people and God is going to have the victory. So this imagery of God and revelation is full on. Uh, But also there's an element where victory is found in the suffering. So Revelation sets us up, as does much of the Bible, to say that every generation of Christians is going to suffer. We're all going to encounter pain and suffering. Now, our instinctive response as human beings might be to take on the vision of the beast and to engage in a violent way of being in order to overcome. What Revelation is telling us is that just as Jesus did it on the cross, there's victory and that God wins uh, through this counterintuitive approach of suffering, of love, of dying for, for what it is that the God that we follow and, and laying our lives down for, for other people. And that when we go through that and we remain faithful to that, rather than taking on the mark of this other way of being and our thoughts and our actions, then God will have his victory and our faithfulness will be rewarded in the kingdom that is uh, both now and in the kingdom that is to, is to come. So I see this wonderfully faithful God. Uh, who protects his people. And when he protects his people, sometimes that doesn't look nice. Um, So what do you guys, you know, Jim Morrison from The Doors uh, once said, um, I don't know how this is all going to end, but I want my kicks before the whole beep house goes up in flames. Um, (laughs) To paraphrase him, so how do you guys, um, I mean, that's super helpful. And what we'll do, I'll link in this video um, in in the description a bunch of helpful resources and we can collect that in a second um, off, off air. But, um, you know, starting from basic through to, to more academic stuff will make a little, because Revelation is not an easy book to engage with. It's, it's a, a genre that we are nowhere near familiar with. And, um, and I personally think there's some real dangers in, in just a literal reading without some guides to help us unpack uh, what that's all about. Mm. But, um, What's your, we'll finish with this, like, how do you think this, uh, the, what the Bible says uh, end times look like? Like, how does that whole thing play out? Because every time something like this happens, um, you know, the theories, the theories come out. And, and, you know, one of the things that we say uh, regularly, liturgically, if you're in any church that, that appreciates some liturgy is that, you know, um, uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. It's one. Of, it's like the central, it's one of the great hopes of the Christian faith. And so, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys, I'm sure, with all, certainly for your work in, with Tefan, but, you know, I'm, as the years have gone on as a pastor and I've engaged with the pain of people's lives and looked at the state of the world, there's this, there's this deep, deep, deep ache almost, this longing, come, Lord, come, you're going to come again. Come, Lord Jesus, please come soon to be really, certainly with the hope of a renewed earth and, and heaven and earth reunited together, blah, 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 Revelation 21, 22. Um, but yeah, what's your take on, on like, how do you read the signs of the times and, and how do we interpret this? Like, what's your end times theology? <laughs> Sean, you get to go, bro. <laughs> Do it, Sean. Give it a, yeah. you yeah. two minutes, yeah. Nigel. Nah, two minutes. <laughs> Look at that. Um, my 
end times theology. Gosh, where do I start? Uh, I think Jesus in his life was embodying the reality of the kingdom. When you see him doing miracles of healing or miracles of provision or, 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 or any kind of thing that he's doing, it's all about flourishing. It's all about taking people who are on the outside and allowing them to participate in a way that they can flourish. And, and I think I'm with Tom Wright here. I think what we do in this life that is good, that is beautiful, that is just, will last into the future. And so right now we're busy creating a future. Uh, you know, one of my friends, a guy called Owen McManus, he once said, you know, everyone's trying to be a history maker. I'm trying to be a future creator. And I think I like that because we have the responsibility to create the future and we have to create a good future. And so my end times theology is the book of revelation is painting a picture of victory. It's painting a picture of victory at great cost. It's painting a, a, a picture of victory at great commitment, loyalty. The virtue that's mentioned the most in revelation is hupomone, this endurance, this persevering. And I think that's what, my picture looks like it looks like creating goodness beauty and justice and then having that fulfilled and you know what not, no eye has seen what no ear has heard what no mind can conceive is what god has prepared for those who love him and so this notion of flourishing is kind of if 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 i'm to use paul's language in 1 corinthians 15 it's kind of every time you see something now and you go oh that's the way it's supposed to be that's it you know you see someone being kind or being generous or being loving or being helpful or beneficial and you kind of go oh that's a that's a glimpse of it you see someone encountering the love of god and go oh it's it's there it's there it's that's it but we instantiate that we have instances of that and i think my the way I view the future is is that that becomes the norm, that becomes the reality, that becomes, and so what we see now is seeds gets transformed into resurrection life in the future, so that even my frail body will be transformed, and I'll be able to participate in an embodied life in a way that I can't even imagine. Mm. You know, I, I I feel like you know the best I can do is quote C.S. Lewis in the Last Battle. You know, all of this stuff has just been the cover page, and and now begins the real story of which every page is better mm. than the last. Mm. And it's this vision of things getting better, where more goodness, more beauty, more justice, more flourishing. Uh, and so I think we often get distracted by you know, all the Antichrist, or and I'm like. Yeah, can we just settle some things here? The Antichrist is only mentioned in 1 and 2 John. It's not mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's not mentioned by Paul. And it's mentioned in plural. There are Antichrists, plural, 1 John 2.18. And it's a present reality that John's face. And what it is, is there's a group of people who have a deficient understanding of Jesus. That's all there is to that. Okay. Because if you were to take it literally, man, the list of who potentially could have been the Antichrist in my lifetime alone is quite a long <laughs> list. I'm a bit confused. At the moment, yeah, I've heard yeah. Bill Gates' name get, getting thrown around. I'm like, a guy that saved 122 million lives, uh, children's lives. <laughs> Some... Anyway. Yeah, 
I just, I just think if we're going to read those passages, we need to read them carefully. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't cherry pick. Read, you know, all of one and two, John, and see what it says there. You know, if you're going to read it, read it as it says. This is the present tense. They have appeared. He says in 1 John 2, 18, so now many antichrists have appeared. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a present reality for John. Don't project this into the future. You know, uh, I, the same thing with the, the man of lawlessness. Again, read Second Thessalonians chapter 2. That's the only time he's ever mentioned. And again, it's a present reality. This is something that's happening in Paul's lifetime. And so I'm a bit weary and a bit cautious where people can't start taking a little verse here and a little verse there and a little verse here. And we amalgamate it into some kind of a Frankenstein exegesis where we create this interpretive monster. And then it has a life of its own. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we slow down and actually read the scriptures carefully? Because ultimately for me, you know, I feel like my job is to represent people. You know, I'm a theologian, so I'm trying to represent what the scriptures are saying to the world. That's, that's my responsibility. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being misrepresented in public, but it's kind of, it makes me feel kind of cranky. You know, I get upset. I don't like being misrepresented. And yet here we have the responsibility, the awesome responsibility. And I mean, in the technical sense of it's slightly terrifying. You know, you're in the presence of something greater than yourself, namely God, and you have been tasked with representing him to the world. So do that well, you know, take things in context, read the scriptures carefully, do a bit of research. Mm. Don't just Frankenstein, look, I can create an interpretive monster. Mm. Sorry, I'm lecturing <laughs> now, but I'll stop there. <laughs> Frank, over to you, bro. Yeah, I would. I would mirror. I'd mirror pretty much everything Sean has said, especially in how I engage in the world and my understanding of eschatology, my understanding of uh, of end times. And I've heard coming to the whole antichrist thing. I've heard loads of names bandied around in my forty three years of life, and I've been around that sort of theology since I was a kid. Uh, a theology that sees a lot of the the talk of the end as being specifically for our generation and playing out in in our generation. When you stop and think about it, what we're accusing those names of is huge, whether it be Henry Kissinger, Saddam Hussein, uh, Bill Clinton, Obama, the Pope, Bill Gates, anybody that we want to throw that accusation towards, let's stop and think about what we're actually accusing them of, if that's our theology. Like, that is huge. The fact that you would bandy around a theory about anybody's name in relation to your theology as it holds to what the Antichrist is, that's that's massive. You should be, like, you've got to be really careful with that. And I can't overstate it. You've got to be really careful with that accusation. If you think there's there's this one person who's going to represent Satan, who will be the opposite of Christ and his leading of the world down into hell effectively, and that Jesus will eventually overcome him, that, that accusation is phenomenal. Now, it's not the theology that I hold to, which is why you'll never hear any of those, those names out of me. But there's a, there's a, biblically, there's a few things that play out, and I'm sure Sean would, re, re, would reflect this as well. Obviously, Revelation connects to a whole bunch of Old Testament stuff. One of the really significant places is Daniel and then the other prophets. Now, if you look at what Revelation takes from them, uh, when Daniel 
And for instance, Joel, remember Joel talks about how in the last days, uh, young men will dream dreams and there'll be prophecy and visions. And then Peter, Peter makes that a present reality for his, for his time. Daniel does the same, talks about what's coming at the end. If you look at the very opening of Revelation, it's about things that are soon to come to pass. That language is no longer uh, about the end or a kind of this big future reality that's 2,000 years down the track. It's a present reality. So what was future and later for Daniel and the other prophets is now present for the New Testament writers. Now, the end times for the Old Testament prophets was tied to a few things. It was tied to their understanding of resurrection. At the end, resurrection will occur. The Messiah will uh, come. Now, that doesn't change for your New Testament writers. Those things are still intimately connected, but now they have this resurrection of one person. So they have this resurrection of Jesus. So their theology says that resurrection is tied to the end times. The Messiah is tied to the end times. And all of a sudden, you've got the Messiah, you've got a resurrection, we have the beginning of the end times, inaugurated with, uh, brought into, into being with the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. The end times began. So then the, the battle of Revelation, or everything that you see playing out in Revelation, is the story of the history of the, and the future of the church, the journey of the church playing out ever since the uh, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and Pentecost. And then we have this culmination of it that we will enjoy at some time where the fullness of the kingdom is made a reality, but the kingdom has come near. It's that now and, and not yet uh, theology. But that's why the impulse of every single generation is to read its own story into Revelation, because it's actually always true. There is always the demonic spiritual powers of the dragon. There is always this, uh, this kind of economic system that you could participate in in order to know wealth and have the good life. But it's not Jesus. It's the beast that rises up out of the sea and all the power that goes along with that. That power always has a face. It always has its PR mechanism, which is the beast that comes up out of the earth. And that is a very human thing without God. Hence the number 666. It's the number of humanity. Uh, so that, that face will always have idol worship that you can engage in that is very human. Now, if those things are true and that battle is always playing out and suffering will always occur, every generation will read its story into those stories because uh, apocalyptic language is always universally true. Where we trip up is when we think that that was specifically written to, to us. And there's a generational ego in play there that I think we need to keep in check to go, actually, we're not the first generation to suffer, to experience tribulation, to have these other forces that we could buy into. Every generation of the church has had it. And when we choose faithfulness, when we choose repentance, when we choose obedience, and we choose worship, when we take on the mark of God rather than, than the mark of the beast that is always on offer, uh, that faithfulness will sometimes hurt. Uh, and this might be one of those times where that faithfulness hurts a little bit, but we will know the reward. We will know the kingdom. So stay the course. That's what Revelation is there to offer. And much of the New Testament writings is to say that when you go through hardship, stay the course. 
One of the most beautiful readings of Revelation I've had the opportunity to read is Marva Dawn's book, Joy in Our Weakness, where she talks about her own personal suffering, her own personal disabilities, and the place she finds hope in the midst of that is the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation says that the faithful will suffer, but God will remain faithful to you as well. Awesome. Oh, I'm so glad we're recording this. <laughs> I get to have these conversations occasionally with you guys, and I'm like, oh, man, I wish I was recording this so all my friends can listen. And I am today. Hallelujah. <laughs> guys, I, I'm aware that there's lots on your plate, so thank you so much for your time. And, um, and just to finish, I, just, I think, um, as I said earlier, like Revelation 21 and 22 have just come to be so central to my Christian hope that um, – you know, as, as you so beautifully put it, Sean, I want to um, partner with God to bring that future reality into the present now uh, in any small way, shape or form we can as Bay Vineyard and here in the Hawke's Bay, but that the, that the uh, Lord will bring that work to completion and that he will return in glory and, uh, and wipe away those tears and end that suffering and bring judgment in a way that will see um, uh, wholeness and healing and flourishing uh, be the default. There's just going to be so cool and it's just so epic that in the midst of um the western world experiencing a wee bit of suffering which is so unusual for our you know for us to go this is what we cling on to in terms of that future this is what we want to embody now and uh and it's it's very life-giving theology which is uh, which is so good reverend frank would you just uh, close in prayer for us buddy and then we will um and then we will call call it a day yeah let's pray Father, we find ourselves in what for many of us is a strange time. Uh, It's a hard time. We acknowledge that it's hard. Uh, We acknowledge too that there are are gifts to be found and we want to be people who find those gifts. We want to be people who acknowledge that your spirit is at work always and everywhere. We want to be people who are connected to that spirit in our own lives and are connecting to what your spirit is up to in the world around us. So whatever our theology, uh, I ask that we would be life finders and life givers, that other people would know something of that kingdom uh, that is there to be found in you because of how we live and embody that. We thank you that you have called us, that you have chosen us, that you draw us near, and that you are fiercely protective of us uh, to the point where you rush to us in the most amazing selfless act, becoming one of us, dying on a cross, and then showing us the gift of life and giving that to us. Uh, May we remain faithful to you. May we remain obedient to you. And may, as we turn to the scriptures, uh, whether whatever part of the Bible uh, it may be, may we find encouragement and may we find you. May we find you and each other and in our communities of faith as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.